Okay. Ready to go? Okay. Yeah. Hey, well, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Ben Solomon. I'm the founder and managing partner of FedTech. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces, so welcome back, you know, friends of FedTech. Um, great to see you uh, virtually. Uh, for those of you that are new to us, I just want to take a moment just to introduce kind of who we are and what we do before we jump into what's what's really going to be a terrific conversation with our, our guest, uh, Sid Olbuk, today. Um, so just about FedTech. So we are a venture accelerator based in the DC area. We specialize in commercializing hard tech. So we work uh, across um, a number of different programs. We'll spin off technologies from top research labs in government um, agencies like DOD, NASA, DOE, and, and many others. We also work to accelerate other um, hard technology companies you know, that really sit at this intersection of government, uh, uh, research and development, entrepreneurship, and uh, dual use. Uh, so that's really the world that we live in. Um, when we had kind of a group brainstorm a couple of weeks ago about what we could be doing to contribute, you know, during this challenging time, one of the ideas that we came up with was let's highlight some of the fantastic people that are in our mentor network and, and work within the programs uh, to uh, just help, you know, inspire, um, help, um, give uh, some, something else to think about during this challenging time. Um, so we're really excited today to have uh, one of our favorite people, Sid Olvik, um, kicking off this new series. Um, Sid has had an a career that spanned, you know, many different roles that I think resonate deeply within, you know, kind of the Fed technician. So he's been a scientist, he's been an entrepreneur, he's been an investor at NQTEL, and now um, leads fantastic, you know, breakthrough work at Lockheed Martin. Um, so we're going to kick over to Sid just to give his, you know, more um, narrative intro in a second, but just to talk about kind of the format we're going to use in this session uh, here, we'll have about 20 or 30 minutes of discussion that I'll moderate, and then we'll open it up for questions really um, after that. Uh, so I think we're going to try doing chat-based questions. So if you could please enter your questions into the chat um, really at any point, and we'll, we'll try to get to uh, all the questions that are asked. Um, I'll ask Lindsay to, to help me on that. But um, yeah, without further ado, Sid, uh, welcome. Thank you for making time. And yeah, do you mind just kind of giving your uh, your quick story and intro to the group? Sure, you bet. And uh, <laughs> first, I very much uh, love the chat technology and everything. I've already had two people ask me if I'm wearing pajama bottoms <laughs> on the side. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> so uh, I'm presently uh, the director of the Intelligent Systems Works at uh, Lockheed Martin Corporation. Uh, prior, uh, prior to that, I was the director of the Emerging Tech Lab at uh, Lockheed Martin, and basically we're, we're right at the juncture between uh, warfighter and intelligence needs, uh, uh, internally funded as well as externally funded uh, contract research and development, and interfacing and partnering extensively with outside uh, entities to tap into innovation that's going on uh, in the commercial, uh, commercial space. Uh, prior to Lockheed, um, uh, just to back up some of your your uh, synopsis of my background, I spent close to 14 years at Inkytel. If you're not familiar with them, they're an institutional investor uh, that makes investments on behalf of intelligence community interests. Uh, and before that, I spent a longer period of time duking it out in startup world uh, myself, uh, a couple bootstrap experiences as well as some experiences in uh, uh, working with other people's money and and the, their startups. Uh, I am trained as a scientist. Uh, I have a PhD in physical chemistry. 
um, that uh, did lead to some, some interesting experiences, learning how the world really works after I got out of graduate school. But, uh, you know, I'll leave elaboration on that, I guess, until the, the, the uh, interview questions, if you will, uh, begin. Great, thanks, Sid. Sorry, a little little delay in um, just unmuting there. Um, well, I guess first of all, I mean, starting off, just tell me like what what have you been up to? How are you handling uh, social distancing? Uh, you know, just in, in your world. Right. So, it, uh, actually, if it wasn't for all 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 the death and mayhem and financial woes that are going on, uh, this would be a pretty good gig for us uh, uh, in our lab at uh, Lockheed. You know, we're, uh, we're in hiring mode right now um, and are having a little bit of trouble keeping up with the volume of work we have. It hasn't, hadn't slow, hasn't slowed us down at all. Uh, we have uh, an advantage in that most of the work under my purview is, is largely algorithmic. So it is, uh, it is okay to take it home, uh, you know, for things that uh, bump up against classified applications and things. Well, you know, of course we've got to run in somewhere else, but um, not very much, you know, we're, uh, we're all scratching our heads wondering how we had time to commute before, frankly, it's, it's, uh, it's going well, haven't missed a beat. That's great. That's, uh, yeah, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, I've, I've met a number of folks that are kind of saying something similar where, uh, in some ways, you know, you cut out the commuting time and that ends up just being, you know, extra hours that you, um, are cramming work into. But, um, I guess, uh, if you think about, we're definitely in a time of, of challenge, um, kind of interested to hear you highlight, you know, other times in your career, whether it was in the venture world or, or other times when you, you know, you had challenges that, you know, maybe you feel like there's some parallel, um, to what, what folks are going through now, you know, how you over, overcame those challenges. And then, um, especially for the younger entrepreneurs, the first time entrepreneurs, what advice would you give? during this time of, you know, how to stay productive, how to stay uh, moving forward. Yeah. So I guess if there's been any lesson I've, I've taken away from, from my career so far, it's, it's to be versatile. Uh, never stop thinking about what's, what's the next thing. Uh, you got to have a life and, and frankly, a career outside of, uh, outside of your job at all times. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, with just your employment, you never know what's going to happen with your investors. Um, you know, so if you're if you're single threaded uh, and not diversified, even in in where your support and opportunities are coming from, you're you're making a mistake. Uh, this is something I uh, I counsel my staff about as well. Uh, one of the first questions I ask them when uh, when I'm doing mentoring is, "Hey, what do you do outside of work?" Uh, your job is just one one element of uh, of your some more uh, support in your career at any one time. So when an investment uh, or a company you're working in starts to go south or run into trouble or maybe your your you know payrolls in question, you can fall back on these things. Um, and uh, you know, let's face it, startups are risky. Uh, you're always you know, working that balance between uh, uh, being able to buy groceries and uh, doing what's good to keep the company uh, growing, especially in the early stages when uh, there isn't a lot of capital and, and certainly not much backup to cover, uh, uh, you know, months and months of payroll like there is at a place like Lockheed Martin. 
Yeah, and I guess I, I'm curious that, you know, one of the things that we see a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is just um, creating that structure, right? When you are in the early stages of founding a company, in many ways, you know, the blue ocean kind of nature of everything is, is exciting, but also it's very hard to kind of figure out what are the first, you know, steps to make? How are you, are you moving in the right direction? If you think back uh, both, you know, to your venture journey that, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, but also as an investor, what did you see be successful in terms of creating structure kind of in that very first phase of, of starting a company? Well, I guess if I, if I look back at my own experiences, you know, very early on, uh, the first, uh, first company, if you will, that, uh, that I bootstrapped, um, I worked a deal with somebody that needed a, a program. Uh, it was a company in Bel Air, Texas, uh, that uh, was doing uh, software and re uh, replacement software and replacement ha uh, hardware for uh, magnetic resonance imaging machines. Uh, he had a problem. I had some skills that could solve that problem, but he didn't want somebody to be, uh, be their full-time permanent. Um, and so I worked to deal with him where over the course of a year, I would solve his problem technically uh, and gradually reduce my hours, uh, while on the outside, gradually increase my hours as I was starting a company on the side and, and work was increasing to a point where it could hopefully support me by the end of that year. Um, you know, so that's, that's one approach. Uh, one thing that uh, people like to do is run out and get, uh, you know, angel investors or friends and family, um, I think that uh, it's really important to uh, maintain a balance between other types of revenue streams that are non-dilutive for your own support. So you don't uh, take on too many private investors. Uh, it's, it's a very common story that, uh, you know, the easy money you get becomes a problem later on uh, because they don't have the deep pockets to take you all the way. And when it comes time to go to uh, an institutional investor or a VC or somebody like that, uh, suddenly you have, I hate to say it in this way because it sounds kind of derogatory, but suddenly you have a grown-up investor at the table. And uh, there's two negotiations that go on. One is with you, the entrepreneur, but the other is with all the other investors. Uh, and the new money at the table quite frequently finds that the valuation expectations of all the individual private investors is grossly overinflated. Uh, and this results in a cram down. Uh, and I've seen instances where the private investors uh, wouldn't accept that and they had the authority to turn things down and it actually led to the demise of the company. Uh, so, I don't know, just being really creative in that early stage, keeping, uh, keeping, uh, keeping an eye on the ball of people's expectations, uh, you have responsibilities to, to people and their money, and you know, just doing what you can to, uh, to take on non-dilutive capital as long as you can for your own support. That's great, yeah, and Sid, we're gonna open it up for questions in just a minute, I see some good ones coming in, but um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, we have a handful um, of folks that are coming from, like yourself, you know, initially scientific backgrounds that, um, are making their way, you know, as as entrepreneurs and, and kind of branching into business. How did you navigate that journey? You know, were there certain moments that you found were especially challenging in that process that you want to highlight? Oh my, I could talk about that for two hours. So, uh, yeah. So as I said at the beginning, I was initially trained as a uh, as a scientist, and 
uh, as my career has gone on, I found that what makes me happiest is when I have one foot strongly in the business world and one foot strongly in the tech world. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what makes me happy. However, I'm very aware when I'm doing business that I still think like a scientist. And it's, it's very important for the entrepreneur to have a self-awareness uh, that the rest of the world doesn't operate the way uh, a purely technical people, uh, a technical person thinks it does. You know, PhDs in particular coming out of an academic environment um, are used to being very, very careful uh, and guarded about uh, what they say about their own work because they're used to an environment where they're constantly tested and challenged and, and having to, uh, you know, provide, provide validation and proof of what they say. Uh, uh, comically, they don't seem to have those same restraints when they're talking about things they're not experts in. But <laughs> anyway, it's sort of, sort of recognizing this culture. And yet in the business world, hey, whoever has the better marketing is, is going to kill that person every time. Uh, which sort of branches in, into another, another thing that I've had to learn. Uh, you know, first, first lesson out of graduate school trying to bootstrap a company was the world didn't operate at all the way I thought it did. And then as time's gone on, recognizing that really the successful entrepreneur uh, has an understanding of all the different cultures that are involved in, in, in a successful uh, endeavor. So legal is a culture, tech is a culture, the investors are a culture, the different types of, of investors are different types of cultures. Um, and the person that can navigate those different cultures by being able to communicate in their language. Uh, excuse me. Let me shut off these ringers. There we go. They can communicate in those and the language of those different cultures uh, will, will really have a leg up. And then extending beyond that, being able to truly put their, themselves in the shoes of those other people that they're, they're dealing with, that they're using services from or negotiating with on, you know, on the other side, et cetera, et cetera. That is, that is just so incredibly important. Um, I'd say that's the number one thing right there, really. Uh, if if an entrepreneur can achieve that, well, then they have enough of a global understanding of how everything works that they can they they can apply that understanding to what they are doing and and evaluate whether or not they're going the right direction. What even it, it kind of makes just a quick follow up um, when you're talking about kind of culture, empathy, being able to to kind of understand where people are coming from. It makes me think of, of the team element, right? Uh, within our programming, we're often bringing together people with different backgrounds to, to, to you know, undertake a huge challenge of starting a technical company. Um, when you think about, you know, when your companies were, you know, at that two to three person phase, what were some of the big things that you thought, would think about in terms of how do you navigate through some of those early challenges just from a team standpoint, you know, whatever those might be? Yeah, everybody has to have a good understanding of why their teammates are, are in the game. What, what are their motivations? Uh, but before that, they have, to have to have a good understanding of why they're in the game. You know, what is it they're trying to do? Uh, do they want control over their own environment? Are they there because they want to make a boatload of money? Or, or, you know, or they hate working for a company and a boss? Or just why are they there? Uh, 
And so this is, it, it's, it's interesting how often you ask an entrepreneur this question, why are you doing this? Because there's easier ways to make a living than starting a company, you know, for sure. You know, why are you doing this? And uh, it's, it's remarkable how many times uh, I ask that question and the individual hasn't really thought about it before. <laughs> you know, like, you know, if you're trying to make a whole lot of money, well, you're going to do things a certain way. If, if you just want to do tech and in some less encumbered way, well, that's a lifestyle business. So you don't go off and do that, but you know, that's not an, that's not a, a firm that you would go ask for investor money in, for example. Uh, so really getting, an understanding not only of where your teammates are coming from and what they're hoping to get out of, you know, why they're doing this. It's, it's really vitally important to understand why you are doing this. What is it you're trying to get out of the, out of the endeavor? That's great. Thank you, Sid. Yeah. Um, well, Lindsay, uh, let's open it up. Uh, and do you want to read a couple of the questions from the audience? Sure. Uh, all right, Sid. So one of the questions, uh, one of the participants would like to hear more about your experience with the Skunk Works program. So Skunkworks is uh, one of, I'd say, five different similar lab entities at, at Lockheed Martin. Uh, I'll digress just for a moment. Lockheed is a really big freaking place. Uh, it's like their own country. Uh, 100,000 employees, uh, revenues of a billion dollars a week. Uh, I have trouble wrapping my head around that, actually. Uh, but if you look at how Lockheed's structured, it's structured around four different business areas, and they're almost uh, organized like four different corporations. It's all one company, but that's kind of how they're how they're organized. Each one of those business areas has its own R&D lab, if you will. Skunkworks is the one that resides uh, solely within the aeronautics business area, where F-35 and and all of that comes out of. Uh, they do some a little bit of global uh, R&D across the rest of the corporation, but their primary focus is, is to focus on the business of aero. Uh, and there's one for missiles and fire control, and there's one for, uh, oh, what are the other ones? Uh, RMS, uh, rotary emission systems, and one for space. You know, they do space stuff, right? So each, uh, each uh, R&D function you know, focuses on just those businesses. Where I'm at is called the Advanced Technology Laboratories, and we're uh, we're at the corporate level, uh, and are enterprise wide in our in our purview. Um, so we uh, we look a little, a little bit further out, uh, things that might uh, be game changers five years in the future, or keeping the company from technology surprise, you know, as best we can looking further out. So that's something that distinguishes us very much from say Skunkworks. Skunkworks is uh, a much more applied lab. They're famous for uh, prototyping aircraft. That's not by any means all they do, but um, you know, hopefully that kind of helps put, put things in, uh, into perspective. Uh, all of the research labs in, in my view are, are fantastic. Uh, they all have just slightly different missions. Another question from an entrepreneur, what are the biggest challenges or problems that your customers are focusing on that might still be relevant in say the next 10 or 15 years? Uh, yeah, okay, so <laughs> this goes to kind of the heart of uh, was my motivation of why I am where I am at the moment. Um, yeah, I, I think like a year, maybe 
maybe it's a year and a half or two years ago now, I, I gave a quick, uh, a quick uh, keynote at uh, one of the Fed, Fed Tech kickoff days on this. We're at a very interesting juncture uh, in innovation in, in the United States right now. Uh, we flipped from a situation where uh, 70, maybe even 80% of innovation was funded at least at some point with federal dollars to where we are now, where that's uh, less than 30%, some say less than 20%. Uh, if, if you set that aside for a moment and, and now consider, well, what are the technologies that uh, will have the biggest impact in maintaining uh, United States asymmetric advantage in, in the military theater going forward? They're commonly understood to be artificial intelligence, autonomy, advances material science, and then something that people gloss over is uh, enhanced uh, interaction with, uh, with the commercial business environment. Uh, well, look at those technologies I just listed. Those are all being developed by the commercial sector. <laughs> that means our adversaries have equal access. That means any um, uh, asymmetric advantage that we would have is going to be very short-lived, and it's, it's going to go to the entity or the country that is the most agile, that can take, take advantage of first-mover advantage, and not just once or twice, but on a continuing basis all the time. Uh, and the U.S. is not set up that way, uh, uh, to our detriment, frankly, compared to some of the processes of our, of our near adversaries. Uh, so places like FedTech, I find very motivating. It's, it's an entity that's part of this picture. Uh, it's looking at uh, technology that's been developed at national labs and trying to do something commercial with them to, to take them the next step that can then be accessed uh, from a financially reliable uh, entity for use by the government. Uh, ATL, where I'm sitting at the moment, is very much the same where we're part of Lockheed Martin, so we can address a warfighter directly through a Lockheed Martin business area or in more boutique applications, address them directly ourselves. But we, um, we're a profit and loss center. Uh, you know, 90% plus of all of our funding comes from landing outside business. And most of that is heavily partnered with outside entities. So it, it fits in this whole same paradigm of, uh, of, of all these forces in, 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 in the innovation ecosystem and how it's moving right now is really very profound times at the moment. And this isn't going to go away in the next five or 10 years. Uh, I think these are uh, some real challenges uh, for the U.S. in terms of military competitiveness uh, going forward. And then look at the global economy and, and what's going on in the government right now. You know, I won't make a political statement one way or another, but, uh, you know, the U.S. isn't the core of all innovation in the world in all fields anymore. It's just not. Uh, so what, you know, what does that mean for all of this? So there's, it's a very, very interesting time right now. One question. <laughs> oh, go ahead. What was that? I just said, and I hope I answered the question that was actually asked. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> no, that was great. Uh, from your experience, when is it time to begin considering angel or venture investment, generally speaking? Well, I mean, that's, that's most uh, and angels come in, in all variety of, of backgrounds. Uh, some of them are actually very wealthy uh, and very experienced. Uh, and then there's angel groups that uh, 
have the same, I guess, the depth of experience perhaps as a, as a VC, and then there's private individuals. Uh, so it, it all depends what your situation is, how much capital is really required in order to generate a minimum viable product and test the market to see if you're right. Uh, uh, then that dictates how much how much money uh, how much money you need. So I'm sorry to give kind of a, a, a hazy answer there. Uh, I think the one one caution I would give that I gave earlier is you have to be very very careful where your money comes from. Uh, there's easy money that's not terribly sophisticated that you can perhaps get faster, uh, and then there's more sophisticated money that's more experienced. Uh, that might be a little harder to get in, in the terms, i.e. Uh, stock preferences or the amount of uh, equity you have to give up or something might seem more onerous, but they'll bring a whole lot more expertise to the table to help you be successful. Uh, so it's something you gotta be really, really careful of. And again, I've seen people take all kinds of uh, easier money angel uh, investment. Um, as the one I can think of that I saw even just six months ago, uh, they had 60 private individuals as investors uh, and, and they needed to go big to set up a manufacturing line. Those people just didn't have the money. Uh, so they went to um, a quality VC and the VC came in and they're very interested, but all the individual investors had grossly inflated ideas of the valuation of the company and it killed the whole deal. So, I mean, you just have to be really, really careful about where you get that early money. It, it, it really matters. And bouncing on that, what mindset do you think investors may have after the current situation we're in? Well, the majority of investors are interested in a return on investment. Uh, it's not any more complicated than that. Uh, the bigger the potential, the more interested they are, uh, the less risky, uh, you know, the more interested they are, and the faster they get that return, the more interested they are. Uh, there are classes of investors that are, you know, looking at environmentally sustainable things and stuff like that, or you may have a family member that's just, you know, excited that you're going off and doing something, but in general, uh, investors are pretty much single-threaded. They're, they're investing in it not because they like you, uh, or they think the company name is cool, or really what the idea is. Uh, they want a return on investment. That's what they're after. Uh, and I don't think today's environment will make any difference one way or another. It's not going to change mm. the dynamic at all. Do you think that this situation might produce more small businesses or entrepreneurs? Uh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I guess I'll just speak to my own experience. I, I have uh, been using some of my time at home to exercise some of my own ideas. <laughs> and so maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, uh, increased time for introspection or, or people that might find time on their hands might, might end up exercising some of their ideas a little bit more. You know, when, uh, when unemployment goes high, people get creative. Uh, so that, uh, that, that may very well have, uh, have an impact. Um, mm. Well, on a follow-up to that, what skills would you recommend now that entrepreneurs invest in acquiring or even over the next couple of years, given the current business climate? You know, I, I would think that the business climate really 
really doesn't much matter in terms of uh, the skills an entrepreneur would have outside of recognizing opportunity uh, that's presented maybe uniquely due to some particular uh, political or social uh, uh, climate. So, okay, you look at uh, COVID and, and honestly, I haven't thought too much about this outside of my own business, uh, but you look at COVID, it's like, all right, well, there's opportunities for personal protective equipment and medical diagnostics and all of these things. I would say for a startup entrepreneur, just forget all that stuff. Uh, uh, by the time you spool something up as somebody that's starting from zero, it, the opportunity is going to be gone. Uh, medical diagnostics take a lot of time uh, and some big money actually to get something all the way to market. So that's not your easiest path either. Uh, you know, I, I would be spending time maybe looking at, at, at some easier opportunities that uh, are involved with trying to get people back on their feet again, perhaps, or uh, or something along those lines. But in a nutshell, you know, I as far as the way people act and behave, the, they have a focus on a return on investment. Uh, entrepreneurs needing to understand all the different cultural elements they're dealing with. I don't think COVID's really changed any of that at all. So switching gears slightly, uh, someone had asked if your lab works on aircraft uh, ADSB surveillance, encryption, and signals. <laughs> uh, I have to be a little a little bit careful about what I say in public venues about what all uh, our, our lab is uh, uh, working on at the moment. I will tell you that we do have a focus on uh, well, my my present lab, we're about 80 people, and we have a focus on uh, AI, autonomy, and uh, human-machine interface, uh, not in a traditional sense, but recognition that, uh, a traditional HMI sense, but recognition that a human and a machine actually can be regarded as a single system for autonomous systems with, uh, with humans in the loop, and there's a whole lot of really interesting stuff going on there. How do you transition from manual driving to self-driving mode and back. Uh, is a human really paying attention? You know, we can, we can tell where the mind is focused, whether the eyes are looking that direction or not. Uh, dealing with cognitive overload and how do the machine sense if, uh, if the human uh, counterpart is overloaded and then how do they compensate for that? We do work with uh, fully autonomous swarms uh, and just about every angle of AI that, uh, that you can imagine for uh, uh, military interests, ranging from, I don't know, population sentiment uh, to how do you detect if uh, uh, something's being spoofed uh, to, you know, vehicle control and, and, and beyond. It's really a very, a very diverse uh, set of activities. And I'm only one of, of three uh, labs within ATL at the moment. So uh, a fellow mentor has uh, shared that they, um, Jeff says he found InQtel to be a fascinating model for bringing new and emerging technologies with intelligence or homeland security applications to the federal government. Mm -hmm. uh, he says in a faster and less bureaucratic way than a typical government contracts and acquisition process. So what advice would you give for a startup like a FedTech startup that was interested in pitching their technology to InQtel? Uh, so... There's two facets there. One, you, uh, for InQtel to be interested, you need to look like uh, an entity that would be interesting to uh, a more traditional VC. 
So all the usual elements that uh, a VC would look for in terms of uh, risk uh, and potential returns and, and when those might happen, those are all the same. Uh, the twist with Incutel is uh, they're looking for applications of the technology that would be meaningful to the intelligence community. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfectly in line with what the commercial uh, 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 effort is uh, or what the target market is. It can be something completely orthogonal uh, to that. Uh, but, you know, have something in mind as, as to how, uh, how your, your technology or opportunity could, uh, could help the intelligence community. Uh, and it does, I mean, it doesn't have to be obvious what, uh, I mean, my view of Incutel is they're making targeted investments to establish uh, financially viable capability resources for use by the intelligence community. Uh, they don't expect the intelligence community to be the driving market. I mean, it's usually not. Uh, and if it is, and that's what the company's wrapping itself around, well, they should go get some other kind of money. That's not what Incutel's for. Incutel's for, for addressing, uh, you know, primarily venture-backed startups uh, that normally wouldn't be looking at government markets or intelligence applications and exploring ways that what they're doing could be applied to intelligence. So, you know, if you have any ideas on how it could be applied to make, excuse me, to make an impact, while at the same time having a compelling market that has nothing to do with all of that, <laughs> those, those, would be, those would be key ingredients in, in my view. So we had a question asking if Lockheed Martin has a venture arm, and if so, if you could share about that and how it fits within the overall Lockheed Martin strategy. Yeah, sure. So uh, Lockheed Martin has a venture arm profoundly named Lockheed Martin Ventures. And uh, they are in a class of uh, venture capitalists that are called strategics. Uh, strategics, uh, a strategic VC, um, is, is making an investment for something uh, other than just straight financial returns. So I guess this is a case where uh, it's an investor looking for something more than just you know, uh, monetary returns. Uh, typically, uh, Strategic will get involved in a firm to try to maybe establish uh, a supplier or maybe the company is developing a technology that is interesting. Uh, to, uh, to the parent and uh, they would like license access uh, to the technology and they're willing to develop it a little bit further to explore its value. Uh, perhaps uh, if the company becomes more profound with the help of the strategic investor, then the parent could acquire the company. Uh, there's a, you know, a variety of reasons for a strategic to get involved and Lockheed Ventures is no different. Um, what they do is, you know, they come across uh, uh, opportunities, you know, companies to invest in that they think would be profound uh, for a Lockheed Martin application standpoint. Uh, they'll engage the company a bit to get a feel for their standing as per the way a, a traditional VC would do. But then they shop it around within uh, Lockheed Martin to various subject matter experts and labs. And I'm one of those people that routinely gets pulled in. Uh, and they're asked, hey, do we care about this? Uh, do we care about this as Lockheed Martin? Would uh, this technology or this opportunity uh, lead to further differentiation of our core products? Or would it lead to new markets? Or, you know, what's the value for Lockheed Martin? And 
if we uh, combine, come up with something that's compelling enough, they'll go off and try to close an investment. And that's pretty much the way most strategics work. You know, they'll, they'll vary in how functional they are. I mean, Lockheed, Lockheed Ventures has been no different. Uh, they, they ebb and flow. Uh, depends on uh, what's going on with internal management uh, and as to where the strategic might fit in the grand scheme of things. Uh, I've been at Lockheed three and a half years now, not very long. During that period, I'd say Lockheed Ventures is on a roll. They're at a high point. They're strongly uh, uh, backed and bought into by uh, Lockheed Martin Senior uh, Management, and they're they're really they're very very active right now. The growing team, they're fully supported by Lockheed. Mm. Sorry, I was I muted you instead of unmuted myself. Too much power. Uh, the next question is: Do you know uh, any network of angels or early stage investors with a good reputation? So no easy money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm I'm happy to uh, elaborate on that question on a case by case basis with. Uh, with whoever is asking the question. Okay. And would you recommend that uh, entrepreneurs sign NDAs with early investors? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, I would with an angel, uh, but you'll find that most VCs will not execute NDAs. Uh, Inktel is one of those. I mean, they, they generally don't, uh, for very good reason. It's extraordinarily difficult to keep track of everything. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of investors will ask, you know, please don't share proprietary information until uh, they get to say the term sheet stage, at which point the company is divulging things that are sensitive and particular, and then you'll start seeing non-disclosure showing up. But, um, yeah, so I, you know, I'm thinking in real time here. I think for an angel, I I, uh, I would be more inclined to ask for an NDA than not. The question I was answering is a little bit different than what was asked. Is I think what was asked is should you ask uh, for an NDA from your investors? Uh, for an angel, I say yeah. I would say for VCs, VCs typically don't ask for uh, NDAs, and you'll find more often than not that they'll refuse to sign them. He said just as a I was going to jump in and ask ask a question here. Um, you know, this idea of dual use, right, is is important to everything we do, and I know is important kind of in the world you live in. You mentioned some dual use technologies earlier that you're excited about. I guess could you can you kind of elaborate, and then also, where do you stay current, kind of on what's happening? You know, in the commercial world, how do you stay plugged in? Because we know, you know, for folks that kind of operate in the gov tech space, that that's always a challenge. Yeah, it is. That's a tough one. And I, I haven't fully figured that out. Uh, I, uh, you know, I took on a staff that was traditionally a research institute kind of environment. And uh, I, was, I was hired to try to change that with lean startup and, you know, all the, the agile uh, philosophies today and leveraging outside partnerships and all this stuff. And I found that uh, the staff was uh, very amenable to that. Um, I mean, they, they, they drank the Kool-Aid and, you know, we're, we're soup to nuts, uh, lean startup, top to bottom, everything we do, uh, outside engagement with it. It's always a perpetual question. 
you know, well, if I'm not going to go to an academician, if I'm going to look for a startup to partner with, where do I find out what's going on? Uh, when I was at uh, Incutel, I mean, they, I can't remember what the number was, something like 750 cold calls to startups per year. Uh, and then those would result in, a, um, in an internal um, contact report that went into a database that we could all access. So if you want to know what was going on in some area, well, you just turn to your computer and look it up. Well, if you're not in a VC and you don't have this mammoth database, what do you do? Uh, there's, there's paid services that you can enlist. Uh, you know, but outside of that, it's, it's uh, you know, knowing some VCs, rubbing shoulders with, uh, with people that, you know, that, are, that, are, that have churn in, in the investment uh, and keeping up with the open literature just as best as you can. I don't, I don't have a good, uh, a good answer to that outside of a paid service. And frankly, that's something I'm still trying to figure out for my organization. Great, thanks, Dave. Yeah. Uh, we had one other question. How would you recommend for someone to get involved with an early stage startup if they either just want to get their feet wet or they maybe don't have their own idea to currently pursue? Uh, hanging out in incubators, getting involved in places like FedTech. Uh, you know, all these sorts of things are really good ways uh, to do that. Go to the receptions. It's all about networking. Um, if you look at some of the incubators, uh, you know, I live in Maryland, so some in the DC area, there's a number that, that have uh, 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 routine social events. Uh, you know, FedTech has uh, as their their pitch night and some other things. I mean, these are all good things to go hang out at uh, and and get to know folks uh, and watch and listen and learn, see what works and and uh, and what doesn't as best you can. Yeah, and, and great uh, queue up, you know, for those of you that are, are online and are new to us, um, we do have multiple programs running uh, really between now and fall that you can get involved with. Uh, everything will be on our website, fedtech.io. Um, and we'd love to, to have, you know, folks involved as entrepreneurs uh, or board mentors is another great way to, to connect like Sid does. Um, I guess, you know, kind of in the interest of just, just time here, um, Sid, any other closing thoughts, you know, just things that you, you wanted to talk about that maybe no one did ask yet? Well, I guess perseverance is, uh, is one. Uh, don't, don't be afraid to jump into an opportunity. Uh, keep, your, keep your eye on risk so that you have some personal backup. But if that falls apart, I know one thing that's happened in my my career that I, I look back in wonderment is that every time something untoward has occurred that unraveled my support, uh, in fairly short order, I've ended up in a much better spot and in ways that was kind of difficult to imagine when, when I started out. So, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I was in a, uh, sea stage startup when nine 11 happened. And it's right when we were trying to raise our Series A, and the bottom just completely fell out of the investment markets. Uh, I went six months without pay from that company. You know, we're all working hard to try to save it. Uh, so I did what most most people in that situation do. You know, got a side gig. <laughs> you got to buy groceries somehow. Uh, so I I started consulting, and uh, the consulting work went through the roof. It was like a really robust business that 
I didn't want to be doing. <laughs> and I ended up, I ended up with more work than I could shake a stick at. And, and you know, I ended up building a, a prototype medical device for some company in Canada. And, and they were, you know, trying to interest me in being their CTO. And it, you just never know where these things are going to go. So, uh, you know, keep an open mind, be versatile, uh, pay attention to risk, but don't be consumed by it. Uh, and things have a way of working out. Um, that and really be very aware of culture uh, and put yourself in other people's shoes to see, uh, to understand where they're coming from, coming from as, as quickly as you can. Uh, and don't trust everybody. <laughs> so, sort of a side story. There's somebody I was really angry at for years, but if I saw him on the street nowadays, I'd shake his hand and I'd thank him. Um, I, uh, was bootstrapping this this business out of my house and to make some cash on the side, I was uh, uh, doing custom circuit boards and populating them for some very specific applications. And, and this guy came to me and he says, this is great, uh, will you develop this for me? I said, sure. So I turned around and I paid some friends to do the engineering. And I paid other people to populate the boards. And uh, he had me meet him at, uh, at, a, uh, at a Starbucks. And I gave him the delivery room and I handed him an invoice that said net 30. It didn't even occur to me to look at credit or anything. That's how stupid it was. <laughs> and the guy, how, how naive I was. And I, I was so anxious for his business. And he looks at the invoice, he looks at the board and he says, these are fantastic. How quickly could you make me five more? And I said, I could probably can't come out in two weeks. This is great. Let's meet back here in three. And I did. I handed him the boards and another invoice and I never saw the guy again. <laughs> So many important lessons there. It was painful enough that uh, it hurt. And I remembered uh, financially, it didn't put me under. Uh, and I went through the courts trying to go after him. And I learned what all that's about. Uh, short story, don't bother. Avoid the situation in advance. Investors don't like to pay for that either, by the way. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Just, uh, again, as tech guy learning how the world really works, you know, watch yourself. <laughs> Learn where people are coming from. Don't make assumptions. Uh, learn culture, 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 where you really understand where everyone's coming from. That's, I think, probably my strongest message right there. Um, and I didn't even talk about minimum viable products and pivoting and all of that. That's uh, uh, something you guys will, will learn very well at FedTech. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. said, yeah, I'm great. Um, I always think that the, the process of being, you know, in a startup, the highs are very high, you know, they're wonderful. The lows are very low, like those moments, right, where you realize that you're not going to get paid for something you worked on. Um, but the cool part is, you know, that there's, yeah, I think there's learning that happens that's um, advanced in, in all cases. Um, well, guys, so this has been really just a fantastic kickoff to our uh, Fireside Chat series. Uh, I want to just thank Sid so much for being a part of this uh, and being, you know, really our opening um, I see some, some clapping going on in the videos, uh, and, um, yeah, so I just, you know, encourage everybody, please, um, stay connected to us on social media, stay on our website. We'll have more of these shortly. Um, Lindsay, do we have an announcement on the next one, uh, date yet, or are we going to do that shortly? We do actually the next two Wednesdays at noon, we have two more coming. So we'll get some info on our social media and LinkedIn and get those out. Peace out. Great. Um, yeah, and I just want to thank everybody, wish everybody uh, the best. Um, you know, one of the things that I 
uh, feel inspired by just listening to Sid is that they're, you know, even in times like this of, of, of challenge and of, you know, definitely for those of you that have kids trying to work from home, it's not easy, right? It's a, it's a unique period in our professional lives, but there's still opportunity um, to be to be captured and um, let's go do it. So thank you, Sid, and um, we'll see everybody soon. Yeah, thanks for hosting. I, I, I greatly uh, appreciate the time to espouse for free, uh, uh, free advice. <laughs> it's worth what you pay for it. <laughs> Great all. Yeah, wonderful. Have a great day, guys. Thank you. See you guys. Bye, everyone. All right. Thank you. <laughs> I think you're muted, newbie. I think your microphone is muted. Is that it? Can you hear me? There we go. Okay. Hi, Lindsay. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Everything is going well. Homeschooling and trying to get 